Hi there, and welcome to the podcast episode of the television show Stargate SG-1. For the channel, let's review with Layla and you. For additional content on the other review episodes published by this account on a variety of subjects, come visit us in the RSS community where you can find us under the name Let's Review with Layla and You. You can also find us on Instagram under the same name. Here you can find more additional in-depth content, including with every episode and upload of promotional posts accompanying every podcast episode, as well as provide us a place vacation and where we can share and exchange ideas, thoughts, and whatever else you like to share concerning this whole adventure that we're setting out on together. So come meet up with me, myself, and I, and I would love to hear what y'all think. Hope to see you there. back for the review of another Stargate SG-1 episode. Today we'll be reviewing the ninth episode of the first season, called Brief Candle. The original air date was September 19th, 1997. The story was written by Stephen Barnes, the teleplay by Catherine Powers, and the episode was directed by Ken Mario Azzopardi. And for those not in the know, and five minutes ago, I was one of those people. The difference between story and teleplay means that the story comprises the basic narrative, idea, theme, or outline indicating character development and action of an episode, while the teleplay consists of individual scenes and full dialogue or monologue or, you know, the whole narrating of it all, including camera setups if required. I did not know that, and now I do, and now you do too. You are welcome. This episode really isn't one of my favorites. There were some things that I liked about it, and to make myself a little more enthusiastic, I guess. I dove into the mythology of both the title and the baddie of the episode without giving too much away, because neither of them I was acquainted with, but now I am. And I thought I'd share, because, you know, knowledge is power and sharing is caring and whatnot. Well, all right then. Let's start off with the episode. As it turns out, the episode's title refers to a quotation from William Shakespeare's play Macbeth. The quotation is, Of out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets its hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Which is apparently from Macbeth, Act 5, Scene 5, after the death of the Queen is announced. And personally, I've heard of Macbeth and that it's apparently unlucky. That's pretty much all I know. Uh, but after delving into it, I've learned that the main theme of Macbeth is the destruction wrought when ambition goes unchecked by moral constraints. And I'll say, so good lesson. And hopefully now without giving too much away, I've given you an indication what this episode is about. As for always, the episode starts off with an MGM line roaring. I got to say they started off the episode well, as in we landed right smack dab in the middle of some action, and that action here was a delivery of a baby. They of course touch upon the stereotype of that Carter must know something about delivering a baby, seeing that she's a lady. I like that they chose then to suddenly have Daniel perform midwifery skills. I like that they didn't just squarely shove this in Carter's lap, but they chose to make Daniel truly the jack of all trades, which they themselves seem to realize as well as they have O'Neill saying to him, You never cease to amaze me with all your talents. I can only imagine that these are the joys of writers in the early beginnings of a new television series. You get the opportunity to take such liberties with people's skills and talents and just make it up as you go along. Which I like. And yes, I know, they still touched upon the stereotype by having all the guys turn to Carter as soon as they discovered that a woman is giving birth. Expecting purely based on her gender that she just would have to know everything. 
Though, I gotta say, like now with the generation growing up with the internet, how it's still even possible, don't know the basics of the reproductive systems. Like, they teach you how it works down there? Aren't you even a little bit interested to know what is down there and how it works? You really should understand how they look and how they are supposed to function. Especially when you're engaging in sexual activity. I mean, if it's not only for you to understand your own anatomy, but also to understand the anatomy of your partner. Especially when they're a different gender identity than yours. Just because a dude can squirt multiple substances from a single hole doesn't mean females can. Well, I mean, there is an exception, but let's not make it too complicated right now. What you should know is... A dude has two passages, the urethra and the anal cavity, and a female anatomy has three. The urethra, the vagina, and the anal cavity. They all have their separate functions, and you'd be wise to know how it all works. And especially that if something doesn't work as it should, you should go see a doctor. Not to mention the benefits you can reap once you know the smorgasbord of possible pleasure buttons there are. Sorry. Too graphic? What can I tell ya? Even in the study of the mind, behavior, thoughts and feelings, the human reproductive system plays a very great role in that. Due to the afflictions that one can have concerning the reproductive sexual functioning or dysfunctioning, I should say. For example, with erectile dysfunction, infertility issues, both are afflictions that I think we can all understand have great impact on mental health. Not to mention the people whose physical anatomy doesn't line up with their gender identity. Imagine the hardships they have to endure, especially as they enter puberty and in a society such as ours. I mean, just today, Impact posted about that Canada now warns LGBTQ plus travelers that it's important to check on all the laws and regulations in a particular state when they travel to the United States. So yeah, it's official. If you're not heteronormative and cisgendered, you are hooped. It's going to show that knowledge of your reproductive system, the workings, the mechanics, the sexual pleasure of it all, is deemed significant, important, relevant, necessary from a scientific point of view. So if anyone ever wants to make you feel bad or shame you for looking up how the sexual reproductive organs work, mechanics are, what the possibilities are, good, bad, healthy, pleasurable, just tell them from a scientific point of view, this is deemed necessary for healthy development, which is crucial for my mental health. That'll shut people up, or at least it should. It's a lot better than the shaming the church did, no? I mean, have we not all been witnesses to how that little gem of knowledge, as they proclaimed it to be, turned out? Hmm? See, we're already getting educational. And graphic. And maybe a tad snooty. I mean, this is an explicit podcast. Just every single episode expects some sex-related something. What can I say? I'm also a jack of many traits. they arrived on the planet, Daniel didn't seem to recognize any of the architecture that they found, but apparently the statue and the decor are all Messenia, a city in the Peloponnesus region somewhere in Greece. I have to admit, I'd heard of Messenia, though I'd never really heard anything about Peloponnesus or Pelops. So, me being me, I delved a little into that, into the myths of it all, and lord have mercy, there is a lot there. There are ties to, to Zeus and to Troy even, and just like, it's a lot. Apparently, the myth of Pelops is that he was killed by his father as a child in order to test his dinner guests, which were the Olympian gods. Pelops' father apparently was Tantalus of the Torment of Tantalus. Guessing the dude did not have a happy ending? Apparently, Pelops' father, the king of Mount Syphilis, or Syphilis? I don't know, I read it as Syphilis, I'm sorry. Wanted to make an offering to the Olympians, so he cut his son into pieces, because that is the obvious choice, and served it to the gods. 
thoughts. Demeter, still grieving the abduction of her daughter Persephone by Hades, absentmindedly accepted the offer and ate Pelops' left shoulder. The other gods, however, sensed the plot and held off from eating the boy's body. While Tantalus was banished to Tartarus, oh, the names, Pelops was ritually reassembled and brought back to life, with his shoulder now being replaced with one of ivory. After Pelops' resurrection, Poseidon took him to Olympus. They even apparently became lovers and made him the youth apprentice, teaching him to drive chariot. However, apparently Zeus was still a little pissy at Pelops' dad, so Pelops got kicked out of Olympus. And the only lightning thing that I know of is, well, apart from the Flash, is of course Zeus. And it kind of felt like they mixed the mythology here in this episode, but okay. As I was now fully into the whole myth of it all, I continued reading to see what happened later. Pelops wanted to marry Hippodamia, but her father was fearful of a prophecy that claimed that he would be killed by his son-in-law, which caused him to already kill 18 of Hippodamia's suitors, because that, again, is the normal thing to do. Pelops came to ask for Hippodamia's hand, knowing he had to race her father in a chariot race. Worried he might lose, he went to Poseidon, his former lover, and asked for his help. Poseidon caused the chariot drawn by untamed winged horses to appear, which I'm guessing is how they got the design of the chariot in this Stargate episode. So, of course, Pelops won. After his victory, he organized chariot races as a thanksgiving to the gods and as a funeral games in honor of the king, Hippodamia's dad, who died during the races. Because, yeah, I mean, prophecies, they always come true. One way or another. Apparently, from this funeral race, it was the beginnings of the ancient Olympic Games. So, there's a little fun fact for you. Pelops became a great king, a local hero, but then when someone died, he cursed Pelops for his ultimate betrayal. Pelops' two sons killed their half-brother, Pelops' favorite son, and meant to inherit the kingdom, were banished, together with their mother, Hippodamia, who hanged herself, because, yeah, happy ending there. Of course not. And each successive generation of descendants of Pelops and Hippodamia suffered greatly, as the curse weighed down Pelops' children, grandchildren, including his grandchildren, Agamemnon and Menelaus, names that we know from the whole Troy legend, and apparently that is commonly referred to as the curse of Atreides. I would just have called it toxic masculinity, but sure. Apparently the curse was finally lifted when they were absolved by the Furies of the court, many decades after Pelops' death. would kind of like to know what they said to the Furies to have them absolve the curse for all these toxic masculinity idiots. can't exactly imagine they'd be the easiest ladies to persuade, especially not given the type of men that they were. But that is a tale told not now. Next in the episode, there's a moment of significance, though I don't yet know why, is when right after the birth, the mother is up and walking around. Even Carter seems to know that this is not exactly usual, although with the royal family, don't they always do that as well? That the moment that the woman gives birth, the same day they have to present the baby to the paparazzi, I always feel so bad for them when I see that. I mean, the woman just pushed out a six, seven, eight pounder. Give the girl a break. The father, Alekos, announces he would call the baby Danel, which lovely, honoring Daniel's help through the delivery. However, um, part of me went like, I'm sorry, you are gonna be naming this baby? There's no powwow with the mama? I mean, she's the one that did all the hard work here, but okay, you go name that baby Danel. Alekos and his wife tell SG-1 that they are known as the Chosen. What is the second time that people that they encounter on the planet describe themselves as the Chosen? So lovely. You're getting kidnapped, forced into servitude, and then you flip the script and make it as if that was an amiable position to be in. 
Is that like a form of Stockholm Syndrome or something? I should know that, right? I don't know, it feels a little Stockholm-y. It is a form of psychological manipulation, usually enacted by narcissistic assholes trying to flip the script and whitewash history. Which leads me to another item in this episode. Because I have to say, I did notice this time that always the Chosen are all white people. As I'm thinking back on the Broker Divide people and this episode, I don't remember seeing a person of color. For a second there, I was thinking that maybe I should delete the part about the whitewashing because it could quite possibly be a little insensitive to the history of that phrase. But when I thought about it, I was like, um, no, because that's actually kind of what they did, or at least how they chose to cast this. It's just something I noticed now. And that's the beauty of this kind of shit. When you rewatch it 25 plus years later, you start to look at it from the perspective that you have gained today, because back then, no doubt also due to the fact that I'm Caucasian. I didn't really flag this, but now I do. To not even mention there is not a single person with a disability, and when you think about it, people with disabilities are a scarcity in the world of television in general. Although it has gotten better these last few years. I've even had it with Harry Potter. And I know in the game, they introduced a character in a wheelchair. So I don't know, kind of make up for it. But reading Harry Potter and then reading that to enter Gryffindor Tower, you had to climb through a hole. The first time I read that, I was like, well, I'm out. Hopefully I'm a Slytherin anyway, according to Pottermore. And before you start hating, two words, peeps. Severus Snape. Boom. It's just, it's the small things, people. Representation, inclusion matters. How about y'all? Is it me? Am I making a thing out of nothing? Or is this like, oh shit, I hadn't noticed that either. I don't know. I'm wondering. Please do share. With this podcast, I'm trying to be as inclusive as I can be, trying to incorporate all the different perspectives to make this the most inclusive all-around podcast. That is how I set it out to be, right? And that we can learn from each other. But therefore, I wanted to make this a reciprocal, like, let's review with me and you, because I know that I'm still chock full of ableist, stereotypical ways of thinking, because you're exposed to so much of that, especially depending on the environment you grew up in. And well, if you've learned a little about me, you know that I grew up in a very conservative conservative, bigoted, ableist way. I mean, just growing up in the patriarchal society internalized some of that shit. Because it's all you know. That's the beauty of having an open mind and exploring other communities, other societies, other ways of life. Because then you're exposed to different kinds of ways of thinking. God knows that happened to me. Fuck, it's still happening to me. And it's also a little what I'm hoping this podcast can mean to some other people. I hope that there's a part of you that you resonate with and that you recognize, but there may be also be a part that you were like, I never thought about it that way. And especially that if I overlook something, you can point it out to me respectfully. That's the one rule I got. I'm willing to learn. I want to know where I'm still ignorant, where I'm still naive, and I want to learn how to not be, basically. <laughs> and this podcast is to invite literally everyone, anyone that shares that sentiment. As the team is taken into the village, Harold notes that they don't see anyone really over the age of 40. Which, despite everything that happens in this episode, is weird. For now, I'm gonna leave it because there are so many more important things in this episode to talk about. Throughout this show, it's constantly Colonel O'Neill or Daniel Jackson that seems to draw the attention of the ladies. Sometimes it's Carter that gets a love interest, and on a rare occasion too. So I guess we should be kind of glad that they at least mix it up a little every now and again. For instance, in this episode, I kind of like that you note that Daniel's like, well, okay then. No fawning ladies for me this time. But overall, they never really do seem to mind when someone gets a little more extra, extra attention. They even find it a little funny. 
Now, this time around, I found it a little odd how accommodating they were, especially considering what happens next. For me, particularly, it was odd that they made O'Neill the one to point out that even though it appeared to be paradise, something felt off. Noting, the, yeah, sure, have an apple. What could happen? To then immediately make that same person completely stomp down on that instinct and accept food offered to him. And only him. If he'd only taken one bite, then learned it was just for him and only him. And then go like, uh-oh. That would have, to me, made a lot more sense than this. Particularly after making him say those lines. Although you could say because of Daniel's response, he decided to ignore his little Peter Tingle. Or that his little Jack started to tingle and it overruled the Peter Tingle. I don't know. But either way, to me, this was like crazy writing or bad editing. I don't know what. If anyone else has said that, okay. But why make him reference it to only then fall into that exact trap? I mean, was it like a reverse psychology thing? As in, always trust your Peter Tingle? Or never? Never let your little Jackie tingle over will your Peter tingle? I don't know. Either way, this scene doesn't sit well with me. Soon after eating the cake, O'Neill seems to start tripping a little bit, or yeah, which to me would have seemed obvious the moment that Jack starts giggling. I mean, the dude is not a giggler. Wasn't it just two episodes ago where O'Neill was copied and it took you for fucking ever to realize that he wasn't the genuine article? Wouldn't that make them, I don't know, a little more alert to each other's sudden changes in behavior or mood swings or whatever? But that's probably me overthinking shit again. I tend to do that. I mean, as a therapist, that is usually a good skill to have because that helps you suss out if your client is holding anything back for whatever reason. Of course, this is fiction and it's meant to give us a little wink into something's up. But we're also trying to blend fiction and non-fiction here, a little educational. So therefore, I did choose to mention it in the episode. But yeah, I do know that I'm a little nitpicky and that this is fiction and, you know, just in case. So this time, in my not-so-humble opinion, this is something that you should be aware of when someone is given a beverage or something to eat, especially if it's only for that person or just your person suddenly changes their behavior or becomes very giggly, that's usually a sign that you should exit the situation. Rapido. Safety first, people. Safety first. O'Neill is led to a separate stool where now Kintia comes out, the woman who gave him his flowery cake, and gives him a wing dance, showing the viewer once again that he is clearly tripping and yeah, they seriously laced that cake with something. After her dance, Kintia leads Colonel Jack O'Neill away. And I know for the episode it had to be some kind of, you know, interaction, but you arrive on a planet, one of your team members, your team leader, gets drugged, and then he is led away for... Well, we all know what happens. This is not good looking out, peeps. Maybe as a woman, I note this, mainly because this is the thing that we watch out for in each other when we go out. But would he seem like the kind of man that would just hop into bed with a random lady on a planet that they just arrived on and that he has literally met five minutes ago? I mean, the dude is working. Shunda. Am I exaggerating? Am I, you know, again, nitpicking? Or is this just once you see it, you can't unsee it? I wonder what y'all think. Please do share. Lekos comes up to Tilk, Daniel, and Carter and says that they are gifted a hundred blissful days and it is a sin to not celebrate each and every one. And that is a beautiful sentiment, truly. Daniel kind of interprets it as, I guess we should pace ourselves, and yeah, god imagine that, a celebration that lasts for a hundred days straight. I mean, the introvert in me would so need to tap out for at least half or two-thirds of that. I mean, lordy, I like a party, but that is a lot of peopling. 
after consummating his cake trip, Jack seems to come out of his trance and wonders what happened, which clearly shows that there were definite consent issues here, which are not addressed at all. Before he even has time to roll off of her, the entire village just comes into the room that they all seem to share. We all know that ancient Greeks do love their orgies, and they all simultaneously fall into a deep sleep. Just as he wraps something around himself, smart move, and goes to look around, the team walks in. Jack again asks what happened. Potter responds with a little snippy, green-eyed monster-y tone to them or you. And it's with a more of a disapproving tone instead of a worried tone, which would to me make a lot more sense, considering the fact that the dude was pretty much just sexually assaulted. His only response Responses. We'll talk about that later because, yes, by all means, let's ignore what just happened. Next morning, we see O'Neill walk up looking a little worse for wear, stating he feels hungover, after which he dunks his entire head straight into the fountain. And that scene always makes me laugh. Someone who knows that feeling, I have wished upon occasion to have a fountain to dunk my head into. Alekos joins Daniel and Tilk in the temple. Suddenly, Tilk announces that he recognizes the symbols on the statue as an obscure dialect of Goa Old. Daniel says, why didn't you tell me that before? And I love that Tilk just responds with, you never before inquired. I love this dynamic between the two of them. They are still trying to suss each other out, what either of them brings to the table. I love how Tilk always has these deadpan responses, which are basically these kinds of truth bombs, mainly calling out assumptions, but in in such a beautiful way that you can't get mad at him because it's the truth. He only just pointed out your own assumption. It's clear that there is no malicious intent. He wasn't intentionally keeping that information from him. This dynamic, this little bit that they're having in a beautiful, funny, low-key way highlights how important it is to clearly state your expectations of each other, especially when working in a team. The next bit about Tilk not seeming to know what a combination is but does know what a sequence is kind of felt unnecessary to me. But while they're having this conversation, Tilk crunches in a sort of code and suddenly a drawer opens and we find a tablet and a stone. And this is the first time, not the last time, that we see this kind of record keeping utilized by the gold. However, I do believe it's just this season, maybe the second season. But after that, we, as far as I can remember... Don't ever see this type of record keeping again. You wonder why? Wasn't like a CGI budget thing? Because it looked pretty nifty. Kinda looked like an e-reader. There they go again. Science fiction television series showing all the nifty gadgets that we will be having in the future. Wasn't the first cell phone featured 20 years before it actually existed in a Star Trek episode? But of course now I had to know. So I googled it. And fuck me. Apparently the e-reader was actually invented in 1997. The year that this was filmed. What are the fucking odds? Maybe that has something to do with the fact that they after a year deleted this from their inventory and we never saw it again but it wasn't until 2006 until we could actually purchase an e-reader but again awesome gotta love science fiction shows if only to get a little sneak peek into future tech Next, we see Carter digging around in the dirt as the woman 
who gave birth at the beginning of the episode, walks up holding a toddler. Carter gives her a seashell that she made into a rattle, how cute, and asks her to give it to baby Danelle. The woman says, this is Danelle, and points to the toddler. It has been a day. And conveniently, the birthmark confirms to Carter that this indeed is baby Danelle. We now learn what makes the Argosians special in this particular instance. was the illiteracy we'd also seen with the Abedonians and the chosen ones we saw with the Broken Divide people. Children seem to age rapidly. Scarily so. For when they take this discovery to O'Neill, we now learn that what we experience as years, the Argosians experience as days. So O'Neill now asks how old is Kintia, and he learns that she is 31 days old. You see him kind of pale like, oh my god, I'm a pedophile. But at the same time, not really because, you know, she looks like a fully grown adult woman and hmm. But yeah, I just had sex with a person who was 31 days old. Should cause a little short circuit in the brain. But as they and I now say, moving on. Because shockingly, that is not my main issue with this episode. The team hypothesizes that Pelops probably wanted to determine what the human hosts would become, so he found a way to speed up the aging process, probably through a virus, and one that as of yet has seemed to only afflict Jack. And yes, once again, as sunset hits, Jack is the only one of the team that passes out, making them now conclude that it wasn't just the cake that Jack ate, but it probably was the physical contact. And, you know, just call it a sweetie, sex. Or technically, an STD. Because she most certainly sexually transmitted something to him. Ah, oh, the art of cinematography. For those keen-dyed people, yes, they pretend that the sun set, well, you could see from the reflections, pretty much on Tilk's head, that the sun was still high in the sky. But, you know, add a little filtering, you got the sunset effect, I suppose. on Earth, Carter and Fraser are studying O'Neill's blood and find that they are nanites. And they have calculated that within two weeks, he will reach the age of 100, which would ultimately pretty much make him dead. And for the nostalgic little fuckers such as myself, they're still using floppy disks. Oh, we have really seen it all, we millennials. Good lord. Carter discovers that the nanites aren't multiplying as a virus would, but they are replicating like machines, including that this is nanotechnology. This time we learn a random, yet oddly perfectly convenient and well-timed skill. Before joining the Stargate Command program, Carter worked on nanotechnology at the Pentagon. She a jack-of-all-trades too. Oh, how handy. She does point out that Pelops succeeded in what they at the time at the Pentagon were studying, but instead of using it to cure people, as they presumably intended, although, you know, it is the Pentagon, Pelops used it to rapidly age and subsequently kill his subjects, instead of helping them live longer or forever or even stop the whole aging process. And that's also something about this episode that they introduced a certain theme, and I get it because, you know, it's fiction and then lovely, yet, of course, they solve it. Spoiler! Although, I mean, come on, it really shouldn't be a spoiler at this point because it's still the first season it's one of the main characters you know they're gonna find a way to save him although interestingly this time they don't show the mechanics behind how they solved it unlike the problem the broken divide presented there janet fraser walked uh still kind of loopy o'neill and tilk through the entire process of what the parasite did in the body and how she discovered its cure etc 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 so i think this is again an example of they had an idea they didn't fully think it through. And I mean, again, it's not a bad episode, but once you start poking holes, it's kind of hard to stop, as you might notice. 
have to say, like, props to the makeup of Jack O'Neill where we see him aging throughout the episode. That, I have to say, especially for the 90s, was beautifully done. That is a part of the episode that I can give the crew nothing but the highest praise on. Truly, magnificently done. And, I mean, it's now 25 years later. They did good. One of the better jobs in television, I have to say. Which only made it all the more shocking to me that Supernatural's season 15 Sam in the finale looked so horrendous. Oi. That aging process, the wig, should be ritualistically burned. <laughs> There's just no other solution for that one. Even though I was a little tipsy. Because, I mean, who can suffer through that heartbreaking finale completely sober? Or at least, you know, I couldn't. I've never done that to get through it. That is an entirely different podcast. But for this little moment, it was a parallel worth drawing, in my humble opinion. As it was like, what, two years ago? Even despite my non-silver status, I could still clock how very, very bad that aging process was done. Maybe they can CGI fix it in the aftermath or something, I don't know. Although I already have the DVD. Mm. In this episode, though they solved the problem, never again is this technology ever mentioned, utilized, or even talked about. And I understand because basically what Pelops did is hack our aging process. He apparently was a very smart little fucker figuring something out that even back then, the smarty pants at the Pentagon and as of yet, we don't seem to have been able to crack. We never again hear the name Pelops because he was a gold, obviously, but we never learned what happened to him. So again, this was, I think, an episode where they introduced something and then it kind of got away from them. And they thought about all the possible implications because they created a narrative that would solve too many things, solving the aging process or all the ailments in the world, god if only. So instead, they just then pretend like it never happened because sticking your head in the sand really is a method that works for a lot of people for a long time, especially in science fiction land. But it does make a girl wonder. But that's also what I love about this show. Like, they invented crap and then they needed to find reasons that we either didn't have access to it or that it had negative side effects because otherwise that magical thing would make life in the TV show too easy. So all I can say is it's genius writing, truly. Except for this one. This one they just, you know, shoved in a closet and ignored for the rest of eternity. And sometimes TV shows do that. They just pretend like it never happened for a variety of reasons. And as a critical viewer, just myself can sometimes point that out. And oftentimes it doesn't ruin the experience. Like I'm pointing shit out and I hope I'm not ruining anyone's experience by doing that. That is not my intention here. I'm just trying to offer a more well-rounded experience. I'm gonna now expand on it a little bit because I have been known to get misunderstood when I'm so passionate about something that they interpret that as me being a big-ass hate patootie, but I can have notes and still love the overall message. Therefore, please remember at all times, despite stuff that I disagree with, stuff that I don't really like all that much, does not take away the love respect and joy I feel for the arts. Some people find that in religion, I find it in the arts. All of it can have such a life-altering impact. For me, truly, it saved my mind, it saved my life, it inspires me. That's why I chose to do these podcast episodes. Now, some might wonder why you'd make a podcast about a show that not only has ended, but episodes that aired 25 plus years ago. How is that even still relevant? Well, my reason is it can be a win-win situation. One, it can be an introductory agent to a television show that I think should be named in the same breath as Star Trek and Star Wars because it aged well, because the bones are good, because the underlying messages are universal and thus still applicable, which I think proves that it's a great show. I am more than delighted to fill that function. 
And like I said, there are still so many parallels to be drawn, lessons to be learned, and I hope that it's a well-rounded, all-inclusive, fun, yet educational podcast to celebrate and connect about the things we all share and love and hate, or, you know, have notes on. Pretty much just a safe space for anything and everything. Seeing that the world sometimes can feel like a not-so-safe place, so yeah, that is my intent. So here I am, celebrating and reviewing a TV show that, in my opinion, awesome, still, and it's just fucking hilarious. Like, this show needs to be known. And in my not-so-humble opinion, Stargate should be mentioned in the same breath. Star Trek and Star Wars. I mean, I've watched all of it, all three of them. Not all of it, all of it, because there's so much to be had. I really try to love it, and there are elements that I love, but it's still Stargate that has my heart. Probably opinion that won't win me any fan. Take me for it, I don't care. I stand by my choice. And I truly hope that even though some may think me a quite nitpicky critical viewer, I'll be the first to agree with you there. I mean, the J in INFG does stand for judging. However, it also stands for justice. I mean, they don't call the INFG the advocate for nothing. At the same time, I really hope that people understand that all of it does come from a place of love and appreciation and respect and gratefulness. Despite me having notes, because the overall message still resonates with me. And that, like I said, I do it more just a well-rounded experience, because I think that 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 is necessary to really truly fully appreciate the road taken. That is also an INFG's blessing and a curse. We see the good, the bad, the ugly, the necessary, the unnecessary, and that is why it's also so very painful to see that we could do better and seem to choose not to. And yet I have learned, being a therapist, you can lead a horse to water but you can't make a drink. You can offer someone all the knowledge, but if they're mentally, cognitively just not able to process or integrate that knowledge, to just hope that a seed is planted, that at a later point in time, when the situations are right, Right? It now can grow. The people that have shown that they are aware, that they do know better, then choose not to. With those people, I take issue. And those are the people that I'm trying to reach. To show them that it didn't have to be this way. That, please, for the love of all things holy, make different choices to better humanity. To help humanity. And if that don't blow up your skirt a little closer to home, to reclaim your humanity. And if you do not, to hold them fucking accountable. I'm glad to see that happening more and more, specifically from women towards men. So often, women have been held responsible and accountable for men's failures. I mean, hello, when you're assaulted, like, what were you wearing? If you have been dancing the jig naked, it wouldn't have mattered. They shouldn't have touched me without my expressed consent. Period. Underlined. Bold. Highlighted. I like that one meme that when an INFG dies, all you have to put on the tombstone to know who lies there. Right, I fucking told you so. Because yeah, that is a phrase synonymous to INFGs, I think. Like, I would love, and this sounds really bad, so please allow me to finish this thought before you judge. It's not because I want to be right. If anything, I want it not to be right. That's why I kind of tried to, you know, warn you. But the only reason why I wish people would acknowledge that I was right in certain instances is because I hope that next time people would make a different choice. A choice that didn't have so many negative consequences. Really, truly acknowledged, yes, you were right, you called it, was when I predicted that Trump would win. Honest to fucking God, I should have put money on it. Although I would have felt very dirty if I'd actually won any money off of it, but after everything leading up to the election, I just knew it. After eight years, a Democratic president, a black president. I know America likes to think it's better, but I mean, hey, if four years of Trump did anything, I hope it really truly showed you, you still have a lot of work to do. 
We all do. Hey, I'm not saying we are any better. Just FYI. But Lord have mercy. That was a toughie to watch unfold. The unfortunate thing is that once what we predicted happens and people seriously underestimated the chances of that happening, just trying to get them to acknowledge that is interpreted as we're calling them stupid, which was never our intent, at least not my intent. People don't like it when you point out that they were wrong and I get it, I don't like it either. However, I have discovered, learned, the healthy approach is see every experience, the good, the bad, the ugly, as a learning opportunity. So I choose to interpret it as, okay, apparently I made an oopsie. Let's learn from it so that next time I'll make a different choice. And no, I am not psychic. Trust me, if I was, I'd be making my living off of it. No, I'm just kidding. Well, what if I could? We just see patterns a lot better than others. I still make mistakes. I mean, Roe v. Wade, I did not see coming. Well, I saw it coming. I just never thought it would actually get to that point. Like, I saw all the signs on the wall, but I truly, truly thought, silly little me, that y'all would course correct before the crash. Seeing as this impacts your mother, your sisters, your daughters, your wives, every single woman in your life, no matter their age. In that, y'all surprised me, unfortunately. And that taught me that never underestimate men's hatred and fear of a woman's autonomy. We are still living in a patriarchal society after all. Learn the lesson and next time make a different choice. That is always my goal, but still I can come off as a snooty know-it-all. I know that. <laughs> Sometimes my frustration peaks and my tact filter is the first casualty. So in summary, after all of this expenditure, the goal here is to share from a place of love and to share my joy. Not to be a hate Judy and be mean. Not at all. And hey, if I ever do fall victim to that, please do feel free to call me out on it. Because no matter what, at all times, the message has to remain. I respect the people that made it. I love the effort and the work that they put in it. I can only commend them for having a thought, putting it on paper, filming it, editing it, publishing it, sharing it with the world. Because that is the most scary thing to do, to share your thoughts and your feelings and your vision with the world. Because you know that there will be people who will hate on it. I mean, Lord have mercy. This week, I don't know if it was just because I was more susceptible to it, but the bitching and the moaning and the whining on social media about celebrities just struck a chord with me. Like, why are you cyber-stalking celebrities and paying God only knows how much money to go to conventions and have your picture taken with them and get autographs and what the fuck not? If you then just turn around and rip them to shreds venomously, and hey, I would be the first to tell you and show you how beautiful fandom is and the beautiful things that it can do. But Lord have mercy, there is a shadow side to it that is ugly. And for decades, I steered clear of all social media, but during the pandemic, I kind of got lonely, I guess. So I finally did end up making accounts for Instagram and Twitter. But goodness me. And it depends mostly, I think, on who you're following. I miss a lot of the drama, thankfully. But sometimes the people that I do follow comment on the drama, so I still get a little whiff of all that's being said and done and spewed and... Like, sure, have the feelings, have the thoughts, have the thoughts form into words that you share... I don't know, with maybe your flatmates or your friends, but then to post it online, tagging them, hashtagging them, posting it in such a way that they are bound to find it. That is just baffling to me. I just feel so sad. I really kind of hope that the guys it concerns don't see it, but I'm afraid that they do see it. At least there was another meltdown that people had over a cigarette, though they were dry humping the couch when he did it on screen for one of his characters a month earlier, but okay. One of the past from his previous 
show actually responded to fans, tried to defend him. And I was like, oh my god, I'm so sorry. That means that y'all read it and that you know about it. How do you put up with it, truly? With all the hate. These people are so vocal about loving you and then over the most idiotic things turn so venomous and mean and rude. But yeah, that's just, that's the ugly side of fame. And that's why I don't want to become famous. Which is kind of ironic here, but hiring fame is not what we're doing here. All here is to share and connect. There's already so much evil and pain and hurt and unnecessary debate about stupid, silly little things. And in my opinion, distract from the issues that are really important and matter and we should do something about. And here we go again. <laughs> Getting on moody doomy gloomy. Mm. Back to the episode. See, this is what you get when I don't like an episode. <laughs> I just start rambling about all sorts of stuff that I somehow do find affiliated with it, but it's actually completely random. Apologies, but hey, this is, you know, watch the sucky episode, and then listen to this podcast episode, and then you'll not hate it as much, I hope. I'm hating it a little less, which is kind of weird. Maybe because I'm now spending so much time on it. I spend a lot less time on the knocks, and I really like that episode. <laughs> oh, the irony. Throughout the episode, we continue to see Jack O'Neill getting older and older. In this scene, we now see an elderly Colonel Jack O'Neill talk with Kinthea. And if someone wants to explain to me why they chose this particular setup for this scene, please do share, because all I kept thinking was why. It was so specific, there had to be a reason, and I couldn't figure it out. So if anyone does, please do share with the group. What snapped me out of that why, aside from an accidental crotch shot, was that Kintia announces to O'Neill that according to her customs, they are now married because he ate her cake. And yes, though I only heard the double entendre in that after I phrased it like that, let's call it a happy accident. So I'm keeping it. You're welcome. And that instantly reminded me of that supernatural Crowley quote, don't roofie me and call it romance. That would have been the perfect comeback. Unfortunately, it was 25 years too early. That line deserved an honorable mention. So of course, you know me, I had to add this to my promotional episode art on Instagram. <laughs> Go check it out and tell me what you think. I do appreciate here that even though O'Neill is aging rapidly, Kintia does stay with him. What I like here is that Kintia reminds O'Neill that even though, yes, he is going to die in a few days, for them that's pretty much normal to only have a few days to live, even though it's for him a very limited time, he can still enjoy the time that he has left. As O'Neill's presence and rapid aging seems to awaken the villagers to that predicament, they now start to rise up against Pelops, tearing down his statue. We see O'Neill and Kintia going for a walk outside the city limits and it isn't until nightfall has really 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 fallen and they've even started a fire which i can only note is odd i mean you always fall asleep the moment the sun sets so for you to start a fire because it's so dark would have instantly or should have been like wait something is different it isn't until many hours later when night has really fallen they realize that they should have fallen asleep at sunset and yet they haven't other than that it's a beautiful shot but logically, it didn't make any sense, considering what we've been told throughout the episode. 
only now does O'Neill discover the device inside of the statue, and this even though obviously they were forbidden to travel to Argos for millennia, the team returns in full hazmat gear. I mean, you were there for days and you didn't get infected. It's a little dramatic. And despite the next scene, all has my gear gone. Despite everything happening in this episode, I really love it that O'Neill finds the time so crap to joke about his prostate. This is where they completely lost me in this episode. Suddenly, Carter goes like, I knew it, it's a transmitter. Um, I'm sorry, that's the first time you mentioned that, but okay. Then, even though the device is broken, they seem to figure out that it can emit two different frequencies, which not only she can replicate from uh, previous readings, I guess? I don't know, it just, it feels a little rushed. Everyone awakens, and it appears to have only been a day, or half a day, so well done. I wish we could all be so efficient. And they seem to have shut down the transmitter, it's no longer necessary necessary and where they completely no coming back from it lost me is that the device shut down apparently the nanites in the blood just die off or something and it was only mimicking the aging process not actually aging o'neill so he's gonna revert back to his previous self and the fact that they were able to shut them down we can get behind that but that just by pulling the plug it reversed the entire aging process because it was only mimicking it tell that to his prostate of course not when he gets to say goodbye to his loving Kinthea. You know, for this show to work, apparently, they need making our characters the love them and leave them kind of peeps. That he's gonna revert back without any further explanation on how or what or why. I'm sorry, but that just pushed it over the edge for me to not even a little bit credible. And I know it's science fiction, but what I always love about science fiction is where it tiptoes the line of making it believable to the extent that you think it's at least plausible. That's the science fiction that I really love. It's relatable, plausible, maybe even probable, but this just lost any and all credibility for me. But yeah, there was just so much in this episode that did not work for me. For a standalone movie, this could have worked, but for a beginning of a television series with so many loopholes. Again, for reviewing this episode, I started to think about, okay, so these people live around 70 days. Their development is greatly sped up. So you can say in those few days, it can make sense that they learn at least some rudimentary language. Although, you know, in a few days, how much exposure are you going to get to really build on your vocabulary there, but sure, a lot of big words were used anyway. Then the counting, thousands of days, should not mean anything to them. They only have days, so if you only have, like, what, 70, 80 days max, you wouldn't even count to 100 and go on from there. There would just be no need for it. Plus, what kind of time do you have to learn any skills? Cooking skills, how to sew products, harvest them, cook them, bake them. And they said it was only a limited range on the planet, so maybe they are their chosen, as in only they get to live happily without any other... Of those burdens and are just supplied by the rest of the planet but wouldn't they then discover that, that they die a lot faster than the regular folks who aren't chosen just thinking on those basic necessities of a human life a civilization to survive it kind of started to hurt my brain and i just couldn't rhyme it so so many loopholes to drive a truck through pretty much 
And then me being, well, me, I started to think about, okay, so she drugged him to have sex with him. Not even getting into the fact how very wrong that is. You could maybe, you know, devil's advocate, reason that they don't have time to fall in love so they just roofie you so that you can procreate, make more babies. Whatever way to justify it, why then wasn't Kinthea immediately pregnant? I mean, if time is so precious and she drugged him to have sex with her, wouldn't that make sense that they went through all of that, that that is their process of procreation? And that got me thinking about the whole gestation and the menzies of it all and just like, it short-circuited my brain. If someone can make it make sense, please do, because my brain broke thinking about this and trying to find a way to make it work. I think the only benefit here, really, that we could draw from the episode was how quickly a woman after giving birth snaps back. I mean, if only. So yeah, this episode, I get that they ignored for all eternity. Poor Cynthia. Joy life, that was a nice sentiment. And we got to see the first e-reader ever. That was also nice. But I disliked this episode a lot more than I disliked Emancipation. That one is universally hated. It had just a lot less truck-sized plot holes. Made more sense to me. In conclusion, my main issue with this episode is how normalized roofing someone, taking advantage of someone, sexual abuse, sexually transmitted diseases, isn't a moment where they talk about it, and thus you normalize it. That is my main issue with this episode. So yeah, overall, I'm very thankful that this episode is now done forever, and that we can move on to the next one, which is a goodie. This one I really like. We get introduced to Asgard, sort of, being named Thor hammer and whatnot. And we also meet another character that was, again, by the writers, a beautiful utilization of history, a history that I had never heard of before. And they utilized that in such a beautiful way to make it work perfectly within the Stargate franchise. And they build on it in future seasons, in episodes that are still one of my favorites. And also for Tilk. It it's a beautiful episode for Tilk. So let's wrap this little fucker up and just move on. I do hope to see you there in the next episode.